Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to With Flying Colors podcast. This is Mark Trichel. I'm glad you're here today, and I'm excited about today's episode. We are going to be talking about all things related to liquidity, and we're fortunate to have a great guest today. Back with us today is Todd Miller. Todd, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mark. I'm looking forward to this, too. Yeah, I'm glad we're having this, and I'd sent you a note. I'd heard some things from some clients about liquidity tightening up. And you and I had talked about it a little bit. And I said, hey, this would be with your background, this would be really good to get out there for our listeners. And uh, so before we get into that, you've been on a couple of other podcasts. And one of yours is my most downloaded on net economic value and interest rate risk. So I'm expecting this one to also be pretty popular. But if you could, for those of the listeners who may not have heard the past podcasts that you and I have done together. Could you give a little bit of your background at NCUA? Yeah, I started with NCUA back actually on November 7th in 1987. So it would have been 35 years ago yesterday. Wow. Um, it popped up on a Facebook memory. That's when I actually started. I retired in 2021 after just a little bit more than 34 years. But during my time in NCUA, I spent a lot of it dealing with troubled credit unions a lot of liquidity problems in that because I was around during the SNL crisis as a problem case officer. I was around during the whole the internet bubble in 2000, the Great Recession in 2009. I spent 10 years of my time in the early 2000s as a capital market specialist dealing with interest rate risk and liquidity risk specifically and doing a lot of examiner training and policy development issues during that time. And then, of course, the last 10 years of my career, I spent it as a director of special actions. And that kind of coincided with the last Great Recession from 2010 through 2011. So I had a very, very career over my time at NCUA. I enjoyed working for NCA a great deal. I retired, and then a month later, you called me, and then you unretired me. And yeah, I have fun just kind of working on the other side of the fence a little bit. Yeah, you and I are both having a lot of fun with our clients, and these podcasts are fun, too. It's a way to give back some of the things we've learned relative to NCUA. I'm really looking forward to, to digging into the details on this. So with what's going on, what is it that triggers, in your mind, making today... November of 2022, a good day to do a liquidity podcast? There's many reasons. And the bottom line is there's a great deal of evidence that liquidity risks are increasing. They're getting layered. We have conditions today that I think a lot of our credit union managers have never really faced in their careers. We'll go through some of those. First off, we've had an inverted yield curve since July 6th of this year. Last time we had an inverted yield curve that went this long was way back in 2006. It was 15 years ago since we've had this inverted yield curve like this. And we have this inflation going on. It's been over 5% since June of 2021. The last time inflation was over 5% was way back in 1991, over 30 years ago. And that's having 
a number of impacts. Last time we had inflation like this, it was a SNL crisis and the recession triggered during that. But this whole inflation is a new environment for today's managers. I doubt very many of them were managing back in the 1990s. They might have been in a financial institution like you and I were, but it was probably very early in their careers in Those lessons are really old. Prior to the savings rate in the U.S. was running around 8%. During COVID, it really spiked. We had a lot of liquidity coming in the credit unions. That savings rate hit 33%. In April of 2020, it was still 26% as we got into 2021. It stayed in double digits, the savings rate, all of COVID. And we had all this growth in credit unions that people didn't anticipate. With the inflation that thing has went totally opposite direction. It's been under 5% for all of 2022. The most recent numbers I looked up just yesterday, it was 3.1% in September of 2020. So we're getting to almost all-time lows in the savings rate in this country. And it shows up in credit balance sheets. When you pull the consolidated balance sheets for the credit industry as of June, you'll find that share growth just tanked between March and June of this year when inflation started up. Annualized growth, member deposits, just member deposits, not non-member deposits. They only grew $754 million between March and September. That's an annualized growth rate of 0.4%. I don't know in my 30 years at NCUA we ever seen a share growth rate that low over one quarter. So obviously the inflation is impacting members that declining savings rate, it's ended share growth. And the other thing that shows is how did credit unions fund their balance sheets between March and June when that share growth tanked? Member shares grew 754 million, but borrowed money grew by 19 billion. Right when rates are increasing, everyone is borrowing money because I don't think anyone planned for share growth to just halt the way it did. So a lot of that is overnight borrowings. A good chunk of that is also EICP funding, that emergency capital investment program from the treasury. 70 credit did get $2.1 billion of funding through that program this year. And I think most of that was probably in June, although some of it might've been after June. It's hard to really tell because NCUA changed their call reports in March and secondary supplemental capital is no longer broken out. So, on so Todd, pause there for a second. Todd, just, if you could just pause there for a second. You, if I heard you right, you said most of setting aside the ESIP money, most of that money is in overnight borrowings. Did I get that right? $16.5 billion is overnight borrowed money. Okay. And uh, that's no problem. We might get into this. Is this something we might dive into a little bit later? But that's a little bit reflective of what you're saying, where it was great guns, everything was growing, and then all of a sudden it stopped growing. And then you throw the inflation in there. Overnight borrowings at time can be utilized when unexpected things happen, like what you just described, which might explain why it's in overnight borrowings. Do I have that right? Or any thoughts on that? I think that's a good assumption on your part is the credit didn't expect that. Right. They didn't expect they would have to utilize that level of borrowing. Uh, I'm sure all their business plans probably assumed they would get 8, 10, 12% share growth. It's been in double digits the last three, four years during COVID. So I suspect the whole lack of share growth caught a lot of institutions by surprise. And if it's 0.4% for the whole industry, for a lot of credit unions, that means it's probably negative. There's some are going to have their four or five or 6% share growth. So 
that means that across the industry, there's a lot of credings actually seeing share declines over that quarter. I couldn't tell you how many without digging into it, but I guarantee you just the way the math works that there's more than a fair number experienced negative share growth. Sure, there's winners and losers, absolutely. All right, so yeah, continue. So anyways, subordinated debt, that's a new regulation. Like I said, the FPR doesn't show the numbers, but NCUA does put out some of their financial trends on quarterlies and without giving numbers, they did comment that subordinated debt grew 106% in 2021. And then it grew 480% during the first six months of 2022. I think you know from your clients that as we got into that, towards the end of June, the subordinated debt got really expensive. Probably growth of that has slowed down too in that 406%. Probably mostly happened in the first quarter. Like I said, it's hard to tell because that number is not disclosed on NCUA's financial performance reports. And it was just another thing from their economic division where they have a chart without showing the dollars that it grew 486% during the first six months of 2022. Got it. Uh, yeah, the credit unions have been taking more and more advantage of that. And like you said, it's a better economic decision when rates are low and they were so low, it made it easy uh, to make the math work. And there are still credit unions out there pursuing it that it will make sense for, but the math is not quite as a slam dunkish as it was back over the last few years. Yeah, and just continuing on, what else you see in the balance sheet over the last quarter? Investments dropped a couple billion dollars. Corporate deposits went down $11 billion. Cash with the Federal Reserve dropped $51 billion. Cash in other institutions dropped $2.5 billion. Long story short, that cash and short-term investments to assets was down to 12.94%. I went and pulled call reports all the way back to 2000. And the last time that number was this low was back in 2018. Loan growth did continue, but credit unions spent a lot of cash and pulled a lot of short-term cash to fund that loan growth. Or as we just talked about, some credit unions seen their deposits probably decline. And so they were funding that too. So lots of layered pieces to this whole liquidity picture that indicates liquidity risks are rising in ways that maybe credit and management didn't anticipate. Now, there is one good thing, though. A lot of times liquidity problems are a result of declining asset quality. For the moment, asset quality is still very good. That's both credit and industry, banking industry, charge-offs are only about 0.3%. So on the other side of the coin, while liquidity is drying up on the positive we do have good asset quality for the time being. It's hard to say this inflation continues. The Fed's raising interest rates, trying to get inflation under control. That usually results in some job losses and a slowing of the economy. What will happen to asset quality down the road? I don't know. And along those lines, I spend do a lot of reading of different financial news and on LinkedIn, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, and lots of layoffs. Lots of companies, particularly on the tech side, that are going through a lot of layoffs. And that's going to have a ripple effect on the delinquency, a ripple effect on the asset quality. quality. And then it, as that turns into bigger and more loans, that that's the liquidity challenge that you can get there as well That that might be coming, right? It could very well be coming in. We just went through a COVID recession 
and asset quality held up very well. But I don't know that people realize how much government assistance was thrown into the economy to keep that asset quality up. I did some other research yesterday and I went back and looked at just the government deficit numbers. And it's not exactly how much they throw into assistance, but it is telling on government spending. When we go back to the last recession, 2007 through 2009, the government deficits went up about three and a half billion dollars. And they threw a lot of money at that recession in 2009, 2007 to help recover from it. During the one year of COVID, in about an 18-month period, our government deficit went up by $7.1 trillion. So that's where all that share growth came during the COVID period, why that savings rate went up to 20%. The government did a lot to help individual people. It did a lot to help individual businesses. You had all the SBA stuff. You had FHLB, Federal Reserve. They opened the floodgates, let banks and credit unions borrow as much money as they needed. And all of that kind of combined asset quality never really deteriorated during our COVID recession, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Todd, it's funny. You you reminded me of back when the COVID relief and the pandemic relief dollars were being talked about and they were throwing the trillion dollars, the multi-trillion dollars of assistance that were being given out and contemplated. I did this kind of the same thing you just did. I went back and looked at what, when TARP came out and there was the big debate of we can't spend all this money on TARP because of the inflation and other challenges, but we need to do it because the liquidity is dried up. And if we don't do it, the banking system is going to collapse. And ultimately they did the right thing. They put the assistance in place, but it really shocked me the exact kind of numbers you just threw out that when you compare the cash that was put into the system then versus the cash today, it was magnitudes bigger. And that kind of made me think, wow, how bad do they think this is really going to get? And we can you know, you can debate, debate that till the, the cows come home, but they injected so much money into the system, triggering the inflation, triggering all sorts of things. That's a lot of money. That's a lot. And then with where rates are and the debt that the that the government has to play relative to that. So it's these are unprecedented times. And so in, in that regard, what's your thoughts on, are we in a recession? Do we have a recession coming up? What, what do you see down the road here? I don't know. I'm not an economist. I'm not going to predict recessions. There's just a great deal of uncertainty. We have rising interest rates. We have an inverted yield curve. We have high inflation. Saving rates are falling. We have an election today. Our political environment is extremely contentious. Energy prices have been going up. And if you go look in prior recessions in the 90s and even the last great recession in 2008, energy prices are often, rising energy prices often trigger recessions because they impact just about everything, household spending, transportation of goods, manufacturing of goods. So when you see rising energy prices, it tends to touch just about everything else. I don't know. I can't predict a recession, but when you look at all these moving pieces to it, there's a huge amount of uncertainty and it wouldn't surprise me if we don't have a recession. The Federal Reserve, their monetary policy tools in raising interest rates are very crude tools. It's hard for them to be precise. So more than likely, the results they intend are going to, they have a tendency, their pendulum tends to swing farther than they would like it when they're trying to counteract what's going on in the environment. And just we haven't had inflation since the early 90s. And we talk about credit managers not having experience in that environment. 
I would say the same thing of all those Federal Reserve Board of Governors. They haven't dealt with it for 30 years either. And the NCUA examiners and the NCUA staff in general. Yes. And so that that's interesting. I would just throw out another observation. When we went into the last recession in 2007, credit and net worth ratios were 11.5%. They're 10.4 today. They've never recovered the capital that we lost due to the last recession and then all the magnitudes of the growth we had during COVID. Those capital ratios drop when you have 22, 23% share growth. I don't remember exactly what the numbers were during COVID, but it was a very significant amount of share growth that eroded capital ratios. But Today, we the capital ratios are lower than they were at the last recession, which is somewhat interesting. Yes, uh, it is. And have they bottomed out? That's really the ultimate question, right? Recessions are really interesting. They, they tend to have different root causes. The most recent recession, it only lasted three months, and that was basically due to the shutdowns related to COVID. Like I said, the government spent $7.1 trillion dollars on getting the country through that. So there really wasn't any institutional failures of that. There was really no liquidity crisis because there was just so much money pumped into the economy. Maybe that has a little bit to do with the inflation that's happening right now. Like I already mentioned, the recessions in the 1970s, 1980s, even the SNL crisis in 1990, that was all caused by rapidly rising energy prices. We have a little bit of that going on right now. The dot palm com bubble in 2000. NCUA closed more than a few credits for that recession, there was quite a few conservatorships and closers, at least on the West Coast. And maybe I've seen it more on the West Coast just because we were in the tech country. We conserve more than a few credit unions in California as a result of that dot-com bubble in early 2000. And then the last recession, 2007 through 2009, um, it was similar to the SNL crisis. In the SNL crisis, there was a, a lot of fraud in the financial institutions and we had a little bit of that in the mortgage-backed securities in that last recession, too. Well, we uh, sure did. NCUA recovered a few billion dollars in lawsuits because of all the fraud that was going on. So that was in common with those last two recessions. But the other side to recessions for the regulators and for credit unions is the recession is over, but the effects linger for a couple years. Sure. That last recession, it ended officially in 2010. I know, I think I closed the last credit union as a result of that for me personally as a DSA in the Western region, basically on New Year's Eve in 2012. So it was two years after the recession is over before we worked through all the credit union problems that were associated with that. And there were credit unions that survived that I think they suffered the impacts of that for several years, even past that. So somewhat interesting, but you just look at that last recession, the three years leading up to that recession, NCUA liquidated credits that had total shares of $161 million. That's in three years prior to 2007. First year of the recession, that number was 195 million. And then it averaged 800 million for the next five years. So it took right. us, the agency five years to work through that last recession. And why do I mention that on a liquidity podcast is that's generally where we start closing those credits is when they're out of liquidity and capital. So it, it's somewhat interesting as you go through that liquidity events. It's almost like a slow motion car crash where not a lot is happening, not a lot is happening. You're slowly deteriorating and then 
all of a sudden you get a big bang and they're just out of liquidity. And like I said, it doesn't matter till it matters. And it's the only thing that matters to me. It's like oxygen. Your body knows how to breathe and it just breathes instinctively and you don't even think about it. But when you don't have that oxygen, you notice it real quick and that's how liquidity acts. So that's a good transition to, it's a lot of data, a lot of stats that we went through historically. And you and I have both been involved in a lot of different liquidity events at NCUA in different ways and some of the same ways, but let's kind of walk through for the audience a little bit of how a typical individual liquidity event unfolds. Okay. Generally, this is all a cascade. Like I said, it tends to start slow and then it progresses really rapidly. And I will just say one thing, you've done some liquidity, or you've done some podcasts on board governance and things of this issue. One of the things that I find is very common in my career with these is quite often the boards of directors of these individual credit unions are kept into the dark about what's really going on. And they tend to get very surprised because just the way the board reporting systems and things work in many of those credit unions, a lot of the times the boards of those credit unions are just unaware until examiners show up and things like that. Typically, so let's go through how this tends to happen. We'll put the systemic ones aside. People can go back and look at what happened during the corporate things and the Lehman crisis. You have systemic liquidity events. We'll set those aside today and just talk about more how this tends to work or how this tends to occur in individual natural person credit Quite often it starts with just small changes in unemployment in the local area. People, management teams tend to respond to that by thinking kind of a temporary thing, we'll work through this, it will get better in a short period of time. So they serve their members. Delinquency goes up a little bit, but the credit union treats this as a temporary event. They're very liberal in granting extensions. They try and treat their members very well. Hey, we'll help you through this. But then problems continue to deteriorate. The local economy doesn't pick up like they expect. So delinquency gets a little bit more worse. And all of a sudden, they continue to use extensions. And now it's maybe in an unsafe, unsound way where you're actually hiding people or hiding losses that are going to occur. You you gave me a perfect opportunity to say a quote I learned from Willie Stotts at the Commercial Lending School of the South at LSU University. And he's, Willie said, a rolling loan gathers no loss. <laughs> All right, back. Eventually, eventually it stops rolling and those losses do come <laughs> home to roost. And, um, and it gathers no liquidity either. Yep, exactly. All right, go ahead, Todd. But the other thing that goes on with that is expenses start going up. You're spending more on loan servicing. You're spending more on collections. And there's a little bit of panic sets in. A lot of times you're still trying to put a very positive light on this with your board. So the true nature of the issues are not really out in the open in many cases yet. Next thing that happens, share growth starts stalling. And of course, you've got this delinquency. So loan payments are slowing down. Next thing you're borrowing a little bit of money here and there, it starts as overnight borrowing and you get it paid back, but you get a couple more quarters into this and all of a sudden you're not paying the borrowed money back. The borrowed money becomes a constant factor. Around this time, your auditors show up, your examiners show up. Your camel starts getting downgraded. They tell you to start funding the allowance the way it should have been funded. That tends to lead to operating losses. Uh, when you bump that PLL, 
that kind of gets the attention of all your other creditors, whether it be the corporate or the federal home loan bank or the Federal Reserve. That regulatory scrutiny starts to increase. I don't know if a lot of your listeners know this, but when we hang a code four on a credit union, we actually tell the Federal Reserve about that, what, three, four days after we do it? So that kind of gets their attention. They start looking at things a little bit closer. And of course, the federal home loan banks, they have their quarterly annual cycle. They pull an exam report from NCUA once a year or so. We charge them for them, but we do give them to them. They start paying attention as well. And of course, they're looking at call reports as as well. So those lenders start growing nervous, whether it's that corporate credit or that FHLB, they start putting haircuts on you. They start lowering your terms. Okay, you can't borrow for a year. We'll short you down to 30, 40 days. A lot of times at that point in time, those folks are actually having conversations with NCUA. They're picking up the phone and they're telling NCUA about they're worried or the corporates want some guaranteed lines of credit or the FHLB says, hey, we're getting a little nervous. We just want you to know that. Another warning along the way here is all of a sudden the FHLB, they start wanting physical collateral. I've actually had the Federal Reserve Bank discount window do this to me also to credit unions. They want those loan files and this gets expensive because even a West Coast credit union has happened twice, Federal Reserve Bank, to have access to the discount window. They wanted those loan files shipped back to New York. Even though there's a Federal Reserve branch a mile away, no, they want that physical collateral shipped back to New York. Right. I think yeah. that's. You're bringing back a lot of memories, all of those steps there. As you said, you spent a lot of time in special actions, as did I, and then as a regional director, and then in a conservator of credit unions. But I can remember. The first time I experienced the Fed and or the Federal Home Loan Bank coming in and saying, we're here to collect the loan files, or you need, like you said, you need to ship the loan files. And that's like you said, it's not cheap. So it's, there's more here you want to go into, but as you're kind of walking through it, you just get the sense that management starts to feel like they're attacked from every direction. And that's why liquidity events can be traumatic. This is here where you're starting to have trouble breathing now. Right. Yeah, exactly. Back to that oxygen. And usually, especially when the Federal Reserve does something like that and says, hey, ship my loan files to New York. That's their way of saying, we don't want to extend you credit without telling you no. It is really what it is because they know that expense is going to have a significant impact on you. Some other things that go on, if you're a big seller of loans, all of a sudden your buyers are going to stop buying your loans. Right. And we've seen this a lot in the last recession. We had a lot of credits out there that were big sellers of loans and they did it for years with no problem. And all of a sudden nobody would buy their loans anymore. If you have a Fannie Mae seller servicer approval, you start getting letters from them and they want collateral and... And I'll just stop right there. I listened to one of your podcasts the other day. You said, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything. I won't say anything about Fannie Mae other than if you start getting calls and letters from them, you better start doing some contingency planning about liquidity. The Federal Home Loan Bank is being, I think we'll talk about them in a little bit, a minute, just because they're a special case. But at the end of the day, then all of a sudden, all these sources of liquidity dry up. And now you have conversations with the regulator and NCUA is going to start making some decisions. Is it time to conserve, merge, or liquidate your credit union? And it tends to happen just very fast. You go from a situation that 
you think is not that bad. And then three to five months later, all of a sudden you have no liquidity. You no, know, boy, I said, Todd, I, the only thing I can add there is with all the challenges that we're facing in the economy with the inflation, with the liquidity, with layoffs, et cetera, et cetera, there are going to be some of these challenges across the country. And you and I haven't helped a credit union yet that's on the cusp of conservatorship or on the cusp of some serious regulatory intervention. But if there's any listeners out there that find themselves in this situation, Todd and I have spent, Todd, I and Steve Farr collectively has probably spent about 60 or 70 years in, in special actions. In many part, in many instances, wrote a lot of the policies or procedures that NCUA has to follow. And it's, it, Todd, I guess what I'm saying is at some point, you and I are going to be working the other side of of trying to help a credit union understand uh, how deeply into a corner they they are painted in some of these things, and I don't look I don't look forward to that, but I know that, that there may be some things that that we can do to assist if someone finds himself in that situation. Okay, listeners, I am inserting this as I am breaking this podcast into two parts. You just heard Todd and I set the table of how we find ourselves in the in today's situations for credit unions where we are on the cusp of a challenging economic situation and on the cusp of many credit unions dealing with liquidity issues for the first time in quite some time. And so what I've done here is I've broken this into part one and part two. You've just heard part one. Tomorrow I will post part two, which will go into why Todd believes the Federal Home Loan Bank is one of the best options uh, for liquidity sources. And then also we're going to then provide thoughts on uh, practical advice for credit unions relative to how to deal with NCUA and uh, how to deal with liquidity in general at your credit union. All right, that's a wrap. I want to thank you for listening today. I hope you'll join me again tomorrow for part two of this fascinating discussion on liquidity. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 